Hello and welcome to the Orthopod for 2023. My name's Liam Fernando Canavan. I'm a final year medical student at the University of Melbourne. And today I'm bringing you multiple histories from experts in musculoskeletal medicine, a compilation, a best of, of the Orthopod since we started this podcast way back in June 2021. The first guest that we're going to reflect back on is Professor Jane Gunn. Jane is the Dean of the Medical, Dental and Health Sciences Faculty at the University of Melbourne, and for some she may seem a bit like the school principal for medical students. She's a highly accomplished researcher and clinician, and she's gone along the journey from medical student all the way to being the Dean at the University of Melbourne, and I asked her about imposter syndrome and whether she ever questioned herself along this incredible journey. So one of the things that they certainly talked about in MD1, the first year of the mm-hmm. medical degree, was this this concept of imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. And I know myself, I, I genuinely thought there was some sort of administrative error or something for me to get into medicine and, and grappled with the idea of, you know, am I cut out to sort of get through this degree, let alone become a doctor? And your career has seen you be medical student and general practitioner now and your role as the dean. Have you ever felt like that at all in your career? I think, you know, in our careers... We um, we don't necessarily, well, personally, from my own point of view, you don't necessarily know what's going to be, you know, there in five years' time, even though you often say, you know, what are your plans for five years' time? I think I came to my career thinking about really what lay ahead in the next pathway. So it was thinking about getting to the end of the medical course. Well, actually, I was thinking about getting to the end of third year because the first three years, being the preclinical years, were really full-on basic science, lectures from 8 o'clock in the morning until, you know, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, quite a full curriculum when, when I studied. And so I had sort of, I can't wait to get to the clinical school set in time because that was when, you know, I'd have more patient exposure and learn more about the clinical side of medicine. And so I sort of would break, I think, my course up into getting to the end of the third year and then getting to the end of final year and then thinking about you know what was the future going to hold and I remember enjoying so many parts of the medical course especially when I got to those clinical years that you know I was whatever I was doing I would find something to enjoy in it so I remember doing emergency department enjoying that doing ICU enjoying that doing anesthetics enjoying that doing obstetrics enjoying that pediatrics so I really enjoyed the whole breadth of medicine and I think that's probably a good thing. Probably some things I probably thought I wouldn't ever choose, but I had a very, very broad view of what I might be. Imposter syndrome, I mean, I think all of us when we started, you know, we were all just eager and getting into the medical course, you wondered whether how you would get through it at times. But there was a great sense of community and I remember forming those friendships with really close colleagues and they still are friends today. So the imposter syndrome wasn't wasn't sort of I don't think I would have even heard the term imposter syndrome as a medical student at all. The imposter syndrome term probably became more evident when I was well and truly into my academic career and did a women in leadership program at the university here and they actually talked about imposter syndrome, how people might feel they're never kind of up to it. And I think I haven't really focused on it to be honest even though I'm sure there's times when you think, gee, why me doing this at this point in time? It hasn't been a focus. The next episode that we're going to reflect on is on obesity, which is a risk factor for many musculoskeletal conditions and many other medical conditions, as we all know. This is actually the most popular episode of the entire podcast. It's been downloaded many, many times. 
And this is a question that I asked Dr. Priya Sumitran, who's the head of obesity medicine at Austin Health, about the biggest loser, gradual and rapid weight loss, and why sometimes when people lose weight, it doesn't always work. Moving on to one of the topics I was most excited to ask you about is the TV show, The Biggest Loser. So I'm from Ballarat, which is a few kilometers away from the town of Ararat. And in 2014, The Biggest Loser was filmed there. And at the time it was marketed as being the fattest town in Australia. And the winner of that year was a gentleman by the name of Craig Booby, who went from weighing 183 kilograms to 103. However, as has been well reported by the media, six months later, he ended up weighing over 180 kilograms again. Now, that same year in 2014, you had a publication in The Lancet about the effect that the rate of weight loss has on long-term weight management. What did you learn from the random control trial which led to this publication? Before I get to what, what we learned from that study, I want to go back to The Biggest Loser and talk about his weight loss and weight regain. So uh, not his personally, yeah. um, because I don't know him, but the phenomenon that people can achieve large weight losses and most people who lose weight will tend to put the weight back on over time and uh, this this is something that happens to almost everybody Um, to lose that amount of weight is phenomenal so that takes a, a, a huge effort to do something like that but most people who lose weight using lifestyle intervention whatever that intervention is um, will eventually uh, most people will lose weight over three to six months the weight will plateau and then they'll tend to put the weight back on and by three to five years most people are fairly close to the weight that they started at this is because the body is designed to protect us from losing weight so there's a part of our brain that controls our appetite our interest in food our energy expenditure and this part of the brain likes to keep things balanced and so most adults keep a fairly steady level of weight across their adult lives when you start losing weight lots of changes happen in signals that are sent to the brain so hormone that's produced from your fat that tells the brain how much fat we have stored declines and there are lots of hormones that are produced in the gut in response to what we're eating and how much we're eating all of that information is sent to the brain to tell the brain how much energy is coming in in the form of food and how much energy we have stored and when we start losing weight there are big changes in those signals and so the brain gets the message that we're losing weight and so it makes changes in our appetite our energy expenditure to try and help us stop the weight loss and try and help us restore back to the weight that we were before and so it's very hard for most people to keep the weight off you can keep it off but it's a lot harder than people expect because it takes constant adherence and attention to what you're eating and how much energy you're burning in the form of physical activity how much you're eating during a time when you're tending to be feeling hungrier than you were before you're more interested in food than you were before your body's burning less energy than it was before you might live in an environment where food is everywhere and so it's really hard to keep the weight off so in addition to losing weight it's almost which is hard itself it's almost harder to keep it off. To keep it off. That's almost the hard yeah, part. Yeah, so it's not, weight. it's exactly. So, so the hard part isn't over 
at the end of the weight loss. The hard part is continuing to keep it off in the long term. When you say long term, how long do you mean? Like as long for the rest of your life or is there, you know, say a 12 month period where your sort of brain maybe resets its calibration or something like that? There is no evidence at the moment that we can reset our calibration. So we have studies looking out as far as six years. And in fact, a study of the US Biggest Loser contestants followed them up six years later and showed that their energy expenditure corrected for their new body size was still far below. So around 500 calories a day on average below what would be expected for a person of that size who hadn't lost weight. So we know out to six years at least that the brain doesn't reset itself and that's probably as long as it's been studied but knowing that people who for example have had weight loss surgery years before who then have it reversed because uh, for, for some reason in the many years later often those people will tend to start putting the weight back on so it it really does seem like it's a long-term phenomenon. Mm. And while we're on the subject of, um, of time frames, so The Biggest Loser is only, you know, it's only on TV for a couple of, you know, maybe a month or two. And it's, a, you know, it's a classic example of rapid weight loss. The, the Commando and, and that other Michelle Bridges, they, you know, put the contestants through some pretty intense stuff and they smash the weight off. How does that differ to, say, gradually losing weight? So that was the subject of the Lancet paper that um, we were going to come back to. So that paper was specifically designed to look at the question of does the rate of weight loss matter in terms of putting it back on because there's a very common perception. And in fact, before we did that study, we had sent a survey out to all dietitians around Australia and close to 99% of them said that they wouldn't recommend a a rapid weight loss program because they believed that rapid weight loss was more likely to lead to weight regain. And so the purpose of this study was to examine that question and we took 200 people and uh, allocated half of them to lose weight gradually over nine months and half of them to lose the same amount of weight rapidly over three months using a very low energy diet which is a meal replacement diet that's supplemented to contain all the vitamins and minerals that you need when you're losing weight quickly and then we followed them up for three years afterwards having lost the same amount of weight over a shorter or long period And so the three main findings of that study were that firstly, people were more likely to reach their target weight loss using the rapid diet. So we asked them to aim for 15% weight loss and a larger number of them achieved that on the rapid diet than the gradual diet. People found the rapid diet easier. So more people dropped out of the gradual diet because they found it too hard compared to the meal replacement diet. When you say dropped out, you mean lost to follow up in the study? Yeah, so discontinued participation because they they thought that the the diet was too hard for them to continue to follow. And uh, the, the key finding was that the rate of weight regain over the subsequent three years was exactly the same, whether or not they lost the weight rapidly or gradually. So most people did put on weight over the the few years, but the rate of regain and the amount of regain was exactly the same. That episode of the podcast had quite a profound effect on my life. 
not because I needed to lose weight, but because my dad probably needed to and did. And he lost, I think he lost like 20 or 30 kilos, but then he kept the weight off, which is the whole point of that episode. And it's something I'm really proud of. The next episode is another mentor of mine, Mr. Matt Alexander, an orthopedic surgeon at the Austin Hospital. And I talked to him about his journey from being a medical student himself at the Austin and now being a consultant surgeon there and his work at Melbourne Hip and Knee, his private consulting practice. I asked Matt about his time as a registrar and particularly what was it like being an orthopedic surgeon doing those stereotypical long hours that the training program advises potential trainees about. And then when you got onto the training program, another yeah. thing that the Orthopaedic Australian or the AOA guidelines state is, quote, you will have very long days every now and then. What was your experience completing the training program when you were accepted onto it? And can you tell me about those very long days? Uh, yes, I'd agree that um, you will have very long days every now and then, certainly during registrar life. I think work-life balance is incredibly important. Uh, It makes us better doctors, better husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. So you need that balance and and certainly better surgeons. But there's no doubt that without experience, you will not be exposed to certain conditions, certain pathologies, certain ways of treating fractures. Uh, You need to absorb all that, and that only comes with time. But you've got to strike that balance. Certainly for me, I remember one of my unaccredited years at the Northern Hospital where I worked, I think, of, you know, 72 hours. I think I was at the hospital for all 72 hours, including sleeping there, um, which was not uncommon during that time, and then expected to function on the Monday. That's probably less common nowadays, but it certainly exists, and it doesn't mean that it's not hard. It's not that it's now become easy. And I think as an orthopedic profession when I and it, thankfully it's very uncommon but when a registrar gets on the program and might be in like set two or whatever it is or second or third year of training and they go you know what orthopedics is hard I didn't realize I feel like we've failed as a profession if that's occurred that they haven't realized that prior to that that their mentors and their the people around them haven't or they haven't been exposed to orthopedics being a hard slog because it it is difficult but you have to enjoy it and if you don't enjoy it then you need to realize that pretty promptly because that's what helps you get through those long days turning up to work every day enjoying the company of, of the people that you're working with um, as registrars you know there are certain um, during training there are certain rotations that might be considered really fun and good rotations and then others that uh, you know I'll choose my words quite uh, carefully but might be a bit more challenging for instance um, but you know a good rotation can be made not so good by the group of people you work with, but equally a challenging rotation can be made simple just because of the people you work with and the the teamwork and being able to look after each other during that rotation and enjoying coming to work. And that's certainly been my experience during my training um, and what I kind of gravitate to now in consultant life as well. Mm, You mentioned that there are little, you know, rotations that you go on and get exposed to other subspecialties and there's, you know, quite a few in orthopedics. There's trauma, arthroplasty, foot and ankle, um, and even orthopedic oncology. Uh, What were the ones that you liked and disliked during your training and and why? So, I mean, there's nothing I particularly disliked during training and I suppose I'll refer to what I said earlier about, you know, if you shut your eyes to certain areas of... um, training then you're going to miss out on things you're not going to get the skills that you learn from say foot and ankle surgery and on managing you know uh, delicate wounds and and closing delicate wounds with 
um, around the foot and the ankle that might become relevant when you're dealing, for me, in knee surgery with multiple incisions uh, in various areas, for instance. Um, so it's certainly nothing I dislike, but there's certainly more others I gravitated to uh, towards. And for me, it was trauma, hip and knee replacement, and sports knee surgery were the things that I really enjoyed during my training and then obviously explored that further on, on fellowship later. And then there were things I really enjoyed at the time, knowing full well that it wasn't something I'd be doing as I went into consultant life and those things are you know such as foot and ankle surgery as i mentioned uh, pediatric orthopedics elbow surgery these are a couple of things that gained skills from knowing full well that i wasn't going to then practice in it later on the next episode is probably my personal favorite it was with two of my close friends scott hawthorne and reese adams and between the two of them they've had 10 acl ruptures that's five each Scott was a really talented junior footballer on the pathway to playing AFL, and unfortunately he had to give up playing football because he was not able to, given the amount of times he ruptured his cruciate ligament. Reese, on the other hand, was able to achieve some sporting goals, possibly not what he had intended to as a young man, but he was still able to walk away with a successful Premier Cricket career. Both of them now lead successful professional lives, Scott as a commercial real estate agent, and Reese as a PE teacher at Kerry Grammar School, and I asked them about rehab and whether or not they did it properly and what we can learn as medical students for thinking about advising our patients and the strain and difficulty that one goes through when they have to have something like an ACL reconstruction and rehab from it. So the, the period after ACL surgery sounds really quite physically and from both of you emotionally challenging, mm-hmm. and it sounds like it also requires commitment to a pretty rigorous rehabilitation program you know let's delve more into that and and I'd like to know what was the rehab process like for you guys you know what specifically did you sort of do what were some of the exercises that say maybe you liked doing versus you didn't like doing and what advice would you give to someone who's going through rehab for an ACL tear for the first time and I'll probably go back to my most recent three they're the most fresh in my memory Essentially, for that first week, and, and I'm sure Scott can remember, the, the first time you roll out of bed and you, you're being handheld by either a physio or your partner or whoever's there with you, you're so tentative to put your foot on the ground. You, you don't think you could do it. You think your leg's about to snap. Mm. You, you're going through so many concerns. Did the surgeon do it right? You know, they draw a big texture mark on your leg with an arrow, making sure that the, you know, the, the shave is happening and yeah. the right leg's been done. And you have doubts that the surgery actually went according to plan. And as soon as you take a shuffle to the toilet, you get there and you lean against the, the shower rail, you start to build a little bit of confidence. And that's the way I saw it. it. was every step, every day, every moment was a step towards me being fully recovered. I hated the simple physio exercises. So the, the, the quarter squat, they call it with me, it was the million dollar bill. We had to imagine you had a million dollar note squeezed between your bum cheeks and you had to do a quarter squat. I hated it. I didn't feel anything in my quads. I didn't feel like it was doing anything. I was more into and and probably more of the exercise I could feel. And maybe that was not the right thing because it probably brought about a bit of pain. But as Scott mentioned before, lying on your stomach with your leg dangling over the edge of the bed and letting gravity try to break through some scar tissue and try to increase range of motion. I liked that. I liked it because I felt something happening in my knee and mm. might have swelled my knee more than what the others did, but I felt like I was making more progress. So the day-to-day stuff was really mundane, really boring, and I found that hard. 
Um, and then by that six to seven months when you're able to jog for 100 metres and, and go for a little bit longer, that's when I started to really enjoy rehab. Yeah, I started to see purpose in it. I liked the challenge of it. I liked, funny enough, being seeing my knee swell up and seeing that that was progress that I could then reduce, then go again, go a little bit harder. And then over time, I, you, you start to get confidence to jump over a cone, laterally run forward, run backwards at a, someone's call, and then you... Again, that's another big step forward. Would you change anything in the way you did it, say, the, you know, the first couple of times when you were younger? Uh, no, I don't think so. Don't think so, because those ones that happened when I was 18, 19, I think I had a pretty good existence when I was 18, 19. <laughs> so potentially I don't get those experiences if I'm spending it in the gym. And as I found out, when I got to 30, I was still playing good cricket and there was no impact on that, mm-hmm. those things. The most recent ones that actually stopped me from playing cricket when I had to give uh, give cricket away, I don't have any regrets on the, the recovery I did because I I was impacted by a full time job, having a, a two year old daughter that required me to be able to get up and get down and I couldn't just ice it for twenty four hours a day. So yeah, no regrets. One thing that came to mind when when Reese was answering that question is just the the importance of um, the staff that are um, assisting you so whether that's the nurses you know fantastic all, all the time i always had fantastic nurses but also the confidence the surgeon uh, the importance the surgeon plays every morning or you know waking up after surgery having the, the surgeon come in tell you everything was okay give that reassurance even though it was only for about two minutes each time the the reassurance that gives you just to settle you down make sure you know everything's okay makes a world of difference it might sound like nothing but it has a huge impact. And every time, there's only coming back to me now, every time it happened, I thought, oh, how good is this? Yeah, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get on track. I'm going to absolutely smash this. And lastly, from my favorite episode to my favorite quote of the orthopod. This episode was with Associate Professor Claudia DiBella, an orthopedic oncology surgeon. And since I've recorded this episode, she is now the chief of the Victorian Soft Tissue and Bone Tumor Service at St. Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. This particular question I asked Claudia was about an essay competition for promoting women in orthopedic surgery run by the Australian Orthopedic Association, and here is her answer. Each year, the Australian Orthopedic Association's Orthopedic Women's Link run the OWL essay competition, which is for female medical students, interns, and pre-vocational doctors that are not yet on the orthopedic training program. Now, the competition runs for all of August, and the topic this year is Give a Girl a Hammer, Now, if I was going to write this essay, and if you gave me a hammer, then everything would probably just look like a nail. But what if I gave you a hammer? Well, if you gave me a hammer, I probably would say, give me a smaller one. The reason for that is, uh, you know, in in, in orthopedics, a lot of, often people think that, you know, if you're strong, you're good. If you're big, you're good. Um, But the reality is that it's not about, it's not all about strength and force. It's actually about technique. So often I actually ask for, ask for smaller instruments and um, things that are more, you know, delicate because I, I'm not a big person. I'm, I'm small and I'm not very strong for sure. But often I do things that are actually quite heavy physically. Um, and the only way for doing them is with technique. So if you give me a hammer, it needs to be a small one um, because I need to be able to use it properly. And that's it. Thank you very much for listening to this best of of the Orthopod going back to when we first started. We've got a few new episodes coming later this week for you to listen to. 
and hopefully you enjoy them. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And I'll see you in the next episode.